this Sunday is Palm Sunday. And a lot of the times, you know, we'll focus on Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and other things like that. Uh, we're not focusing on that. We're focusing on Jesus coming into Galilee uh, today. But there's some similarities. One of the, the interesting things about Jesus on Palm Sunday as he is entering into Jerusalem is that uh, they, they welcomed him as a king. They laid palm branches before him. And they were singing, Hosanna, Hosanna on the highest. And then just a few days later, they were yelling, crucify him. Uh, they, they missed something. One day he's king, another day he's worthy of being hung on the cross. And we see in that story of the triumphal entry, just the, um, I guess the, the confusion that surrounded the person of Jesus and just who he was. And we'll see today in this passage that uh, the people of Galilee were in many ways similar to the Jews in that they didn't really see Jesus for who he was for a variety of reasons. And it's interesting when you look at the book of John because this, this whole book of John was written for a purpose and we have it right up here on the walls here it says these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name that's the purpose of the book of John and when you look at this verse it says these are written what are the these well these are the the different accounts the different uh, stories and instances that John relays in the book of John, they're all written with a specific goal in mind. And the goal is that you would read this book of John and you would realize who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, that he is the son of God. And you would realize that by believing in his name, you may have life. So each one of these stories is, is calculated and is put there for a certain purpose. And as we've been re, uh, working our way through the book of John, we've seen several different examples of different people having interactions with Jesus. And each one of those was, uh, was written to reach a, a specific kind of person. Uh, back in chapter 3 of of John, we had Nicodemus, who was uh, the religious elite. He knew all the right things. He was a, a religious leader who was well respected, and yet, what was he missing? He he hadn't truly been born again, and he didn't even understand what that meant when Jesus said, "You must be born again." He thought it was all about this external stuff. Uh, doing the right things, obeying all the laws, and, you know, you're good. And he missed the, the belief in the transformation that has to happen in your heart. And so Jesus tells him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And he, he hits Nicodemus right where he needs to be hit. 
And then, you know, we have several other examples of this in, in John. The, the next big story is the woman at the well. And we have kind of a contrast here between this religious, you know, uh, upstanding citizen. And then we have this woman who is not your upstanding citizen. And she's so ashamed of what she's done that she won't even go to get water with everybody else. She has to go at in the middle of the day. And Jesus meets her. And, you know, what is her testimony of Jesus? This man told me everything that I have done. And he still offered me living water. Like, he knows all my garbage. He, he knew that I wasn't married and that I had been married, you know, several times before and that I wasn't living according to the law and I was doing things wrong and yet he offered me eternal life. And kind of opposite people and yet it's the same thing. Jesus is, is hitting her at just the right spot. She's hearing exactly what she needs. And in turn, she believes. She understands who he is. She, uh, she confesses and she goes back and she tells the whole city and the whole city believes based on her testimony and what he says. And it's, it's a pretty amazing thing. And now we have this, this next account here and it is a, a different group of people. And we're going to see how Jesus, uh, Jesus hits them in just the right spot too. He, he sees their need and he confronts them with it. So who are these people that, that he's talking about? Where the, they are the Galileans. Um, if you remember, Jeff in weeks past has talked about how Jesus is on a journey. He's going from Jerusalem, which is south, and he's been heading north, and he went to Samaria, and he had the encounter with the woman at the well and all of that, and Sychar is in Samaria. And then he's continuing north, and north of Samaria is the land of Galilee, and it's a big area. And in the land of Galilee is the city of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. And so the interesting thing about Galilee is that of all the people in the area of Jerusalem, these people were most familiar with who Jesus was. They had seen him grow up. You know, he played with their kids when they were little. He, uh, he was the, the shop boy in the carpenter shop when they went to get their chairs made and they saw Jesus sweeping up the sawdust. You know, they were familiar with who he was and they may even be able to say, well, oh yeah, I remember Jesus was in my Sunday school class. And boy, he always got the answer right. Interesting. You know, they, they knew who he was and yet they didn't know who he was. And that's evident from what Jesus says about uh, this land of Galilee. Look at uh, verse 44. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. 
Now, when he says hometown, he's talking about the, the area of Galilee. He's talking specifically about his hometown of Nazareth. And he says that a prophet has no honor in their hometown. However, verse 45, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Now, on the surface, that, that kind of seems like he's saying two different things. Uh, one verse he's saying he's, he doesn't have any honor in his hometown. And then the very next verse he says, he went to Galilee and the Galileans welcomed him. Um, so what's the deal? Is that some sort of contradiction or what's happening here? Well, it's, it's not a contradiction. He's really saying uh, two different things. In verse 44, when he says that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown, the, uh, the Greek word that he's using there is time, and the basic, uh, basic meaning of that word is it is a valuing by which the price is fixed, or it is pertaining to the honor which one has by reason of rank or state of office which he holds. So, when Jesus says he has no honor in his own hometown, what he's saying is, these people don't value me appropriately. That first definition of that word is a valuing by which the price is fixed. So if you have a lump of gold and somebody, you know, it's like 10 pounds of gold or whatever, and somebody goes, oh, I'll give you five bucks for that. They have not valued that properly. They have not honored that chunk of gold correctly. And, and this is what he's saying, that the people in his hometown do not value him appropriately. Not only that, but they don't give him honor that is due him because of his rank or his office. He is the Messiah. Uh, if the president walked through the doors, regardless of what you think of him, you should pay him respect because of his office. He is the president of the United States of America. You should respect him. And that is the thing that is lacking in the Galileans. Now, even though they didn't honor him, they didn't esteem him properly, they didn't give him the honor that is due his position as Messiah, as son of God, um, they did welcome him. The next verse says so. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Now that is not implying that they uh, had a change of heart and now they're honoring him as the Messiah. It just simply means that they, they welcomed him in. The word there is decome, and it just means to receive somebody. So Jesus was back in town, and they welcomed him in. They said, oh, hey, Jesus, come on in, you know? Stay at my place, maybe. They were friendly. They welcomed him, but at the same time, they didn't understand that the Messiah was back. And they didn't understand that that. All of these years before, they were in the presence of God. And so there is this disconnect. They, they knew of Jesus. They knew who he was. They knew what he did. But they just thought, oh, it's Jesus. 
not, oh, it's Jesus, the Messiah. So you see the difference there? So they welcome him back in, and we have another clue as to why they welcome him back in. Number one, they're pretty familiar with him, but number two, the end of verse 45 says, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now, what was it that Jesus had done at the feast? Well, that was where he overturned the tables in the temple, cleared the place out with a whip. He did many other signs and miracles. And these people from Galilee had made that trip down to Jerusalem to be there for the feast, and they saw this happening. And so they made the trip back they're now in their hometown, and Jesus is back in town. And so, what do you think they're thinking? <gasps> Ooh, Jesus. Man, that guy put on a pretty good show down at the feast. I'm going to go see what he's gonna, up to now. You know, maybe he'll do a miracle. Maybe he'll, you know, really get on somebody's case. Maybe he'll, you know, yell at the Pharisees again. Or maybe he'll do something crazy or spectacular. So they were kind of like, Wow, Jesus. You know, they saw him as, as entertainment or as a, as a spectacle, a magician. And so they, they're welcoming him back into Galilee. Ooh, yeah, come on in. What are you going to do, Jesus? It's kind of exciting. Jesus is back. The unfortunate thing is that even though they were welcoming and they were kind of, you know, talking, ooh, Jesus, what's he going to do? They, the point is that they missed the point. They saw Jesus as just a guy who was doing crazy things. And, and they were intrigued. And they wanted to watch. They were a bunch of looky-loos. And they didn't esteem him for who he truly was. Now, an interesting thing in, in the book of John, when John talks about miracles, a lot of the times he, he calls them signs. Jesus is about to do a miracle here, uh, but it, John refers to it as a sign. What do signs do? They, they, they point you in a direction or they give you information about something, right? Uh, if you're, you know, going down the road and you're trying to find I-5, you look for the signs that say this way to I-5, you know, or that way to this attraction, whatever it is. You look for the signs that point you in the right direction. And John calls these miracles signs because they're not just cool things that Jesus does. They're signs. They are meant to show people who he is. And the point of these signs is not that you stop and look at the sign and go, ooh, that's a pretty sign. Wow, look at the lettering on that. You know, the point is that you, you go where the sign tells you to go, right? And, and so these miracles are not ends in and of themselves, but they are signs that should point the people to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, incarnate, right here. But 
people miss it. And we see at the end of this account in verse 54, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So he's, this whole experience here is not just a, a miracle that uh, you can look at and just go, oh, wow, that was really cool. But it's, it's supposed to point you to something, to Jesus' true identity. Let's continue on here. So he's in Galilee. People are kind of excited. Hey, Jesus is back. Uh, it says in verse 46, so he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Now Cana and Capernaum, they're about 15 miles apart or so. They're both in the, in the region of Galilee. And Cana is where he had made the water into wine. So he's again in the presence of people who, who had some experience with Jesus doing cool things. Uh, maybe they were at that wedding and they, you know, experienced that whole thing and they drank the wine and afterwards they heard, what, Jesus made that? Are you serious? That's amazing. And so there's kind of this buzz about the area. So much so that this guy in Capernaum, 15 miles away, hears that Jesus is back in town. At Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So we have an official, and he has a son who is, who is ill, who is sick. He's about to die. And this is one of those things where you can kind of just read through this and it, it's one of those uh, aspects of, of a, a passage that, that we can kind of gloss over the importance or the significance of this. His son is dying. Right? How many of you have sons or daughters? Raise your hands. Lots of you. Okay. So now, you know, when I read through this, when I read through this, I'm like, oh, there's an official, son is ill, blah, 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 blah. You know, and you just like go by that. But stop. This is significant. This guy's son is on his deathbed. You know, so picture whoever your son or daughter is and picture them laying there feverish because it says later on that he had a fever that left him. They're sweaty, they're red, they're writhing around. There's nothing that you can do. They're dying. This guy's an official. He probably has some money. He probably has some resources. He most likely has had the best doctors in the area come through and, you know, try and help. And everything that they're doing is not helping. He's dying. He's like that close. And this guy's desperate. And it's a, a significant thing. And then he hears something. Jesus is in town. And he goes, Jesus is back? And you see a little bit of hope because 
he knows about Jesus. He's heard about Jesus. Jesus has done miracles. He's done great things. And so maybe Jesus can heal my son. And so he goes. You know, he takes that 15-mile journey, which, you know, to us, 15 miles, big deal. But, you know, that's a significant thing to, to walk 15 miles or maybe he has a camel, I don't know, or a donkey. But it's, it's a significant ways to go and to find Jesus and to, to try and get him to come back and heal his son. And so we see that in verse 47, 47 he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. Now, you know, if, if anything were a, a noble cause, you, know, you would think that that's pretty good. You know, this guy's son is on his deathbed. And he's coming to Jesus and he's asking Jesus, come, you know, heal my son. And this is something that, that I would think when Jesus hears this guy say, hey, please come, Jesus would go, oh, yeah, okay. You know, let's go. Let's go heal him. But he doesn't do that. He, he gives an answer that, that actually seems kind of harsh. Look at verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Whoa, Jesus, uh, this guy's son is dying. Hello. <laughs> you know, aren't you going to help him? Aren't you going to have mercy? Aren't you going to have pity, show love? No. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That kind of, that answer, it, it, at first it doesn't seem like it fits. But there's something that, that we kind of miss as we read through this. And the key is the use in this saying. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now here's the key. The use are plural. Just like if I was going to say, you people need to listen up. I'm talking to a crowd. I'm using the plural form of you. Now, when I first read this, I'm thinking guy comes to Jesus. It's him and Jesus, you know, just the two of them talking. And Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And, you know, I'm thinking it's just a one-on-one -on -one conversation and going, wow, that's a strange answer from Jesus, but it's not a one-on-one -on -one conversation. He's addressing this official, but there are more people there. Now you think, well, what do you mean there are more people there? Well, where is he? He's in Galilee, right? He's in Cana of Galilee, and everybody's kind of talking. Hey, Jesus is here, remember? And then he's in Cana of Galilee, and you have this official who has just come up from Capernaum and he's a pretty important guy and they recognize that. And this official comes to your town and goes, where is Jesus? My son is on his deathbed. I got to find him. So what are you going to do? <gasps> yes, I need to see a miracle. 
yeah, Jesus, he's this way. Come on, I'll show you. And as you're running down the street, you're like, Bob, Jesus is gonna do a miracle. Come on, this guy's son, he's dead. And they're going through the town. They get to Jesus and it's not just Jesus and this guy, but it's Jesus and this guy and the looky-loos, the Galileans. And this guy makes his, his case. He says, will you come down? My son is sick. He's on his deathbed. And Jesus, in reply, says to the people and to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. And what he's doing is he's confronting them with their greatest need. Because these people were so familiar with who he was and what he was doing that all they wanted was to see something cool. They wanted to see a sign. They wanted to see a miracle. And and Jesus is saying, man, you guys need to believe without seeing a sign. Without seeing a miracle. That's your downfall is you're all about seeing these cool things. And then you'll say, wow, Jesus is a great person. But if I don't do signs or miracles, you're not going to believe. You're not going to say that there's something special with me. You're not going to give me any kind of esteem. And that's not right. Do we come to Jesus just to see the amazing things that he can do for us? Maybe that's our problem. That was their problem. And this this answer, I think, served two purposes. Purpose number one, I think it probably cleared out the crowd. Because you had a bunch of people there going, miracle, miracle, miracle. And then Jesus goes, unless you people see signs or miracles, you won't believe. And he says it in a way that communicates, I'm not going to perform a sign or a miracle. And so they go, well, oh, I left the bread in the oven. Go back to the bread. You know, go back to whatever they were doing because, oh, well, Jesus isn't going to do anything. Bummer. I guess we'll have to wait and see what he does tomorrow. And, and so it kind of, I think this statement serves, number one, to clear out the crowd. Number two, he's just told them exactly what they need to truly believe. They need to not look at signs and wonders and be uh, enamored with them, but they need to see Jesus for who he is, not for the cool things that he can do. And along with that, I believe that he has confronted this official with what this official really needed to hear too. Think about why the official was there. His son was on his deathbed. 
So what does this official really want? What's his main goal in all of this? He wants his son to live, right? And so as a means to having his son live, what is he gonna do? He's gonna go get Jesus. And hopefully Jesus can take care of this thing that I really want. So having his son healed is kind of his, his focus, the center of what he wants to accomplish. And Jesus is a means to accomplishing that goal. And that's not right. That's not true faith. That's not true belief. His faith was kind of in Jesus, but it was only as long as Jesus could help with what he truly wanted, having his son healed. And we have to ask ourselves a tough question here. Is it more important for that man's son to be healed or is it more important for that man, that official, to realize who Jesus truly is? And that's a tough question. Because your son is laying on his deathbed. But it's more important that this man come to realize who Jesus is than for his son to be healed. And this points out a, a problem, not only that the official had, but that a lot of people have, is that we want to use Jesus as a means to something else. So like, you're a businessman and you know this other businessman who started going to church and now he's praying and his business has doubled. And you think to yourself, oh, maybe I should check out this church thing. Or you hear about somebody, uh, you know, praying and getting well and you think, oh, well, I want to be well. So maybe I should pray. And the problem is, that the focus is on wealth or health or something and you're using Jesus to get there. Or you're using the church or you're using something to get to what you really want. And the sad thing is that it happens a lot. People come in and out of churches and, and things and they, they have desires that they want met, but their desires aren't truly Jesus. They just want him to, to do something for him. And until Jesus and God and what he has done is central and that's what you want, then the rest of the stuff is just, it's not important. John Piper, in his book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, he, he has this uh, section that I want to read because it deals with this very thing, the idea that many people 
come to Jesus or religion or Christianity to get something other than Jesus. And I think it just plays in really well with, with this passage. So it's a few paragraphs long, just uh, bear with me. Uh, John Piper writes, I feel a special burden for the millions of nominal Christians who are not born again, who believe God loves them and yet are on their way to hell. And the difference between them and a born again believer is this. What's the bottom, the decisive foundation of their happiness? As you penetrate down deeper and deeper to the core or the bottom, what makes you happy? Millions of nominal Christians have never experienced a fundamental alteration of that foundation of happiness. Instead, they have absorbed the notion that becoming Christian means turning to Jesus to get what you always wanted before you were born again. So, if you wanted wealth, you stop depending on yourself for it, and by prayer and faith and obedience, you depend on Jesus for wealth. If you wanted to be healthy, you turn from mere human cures to Jesus as the source of your health. If you wanted to escape the pain of hell, you turn to Jesus for the escape. If you wanted to have a happy marriage, you come to Jesus for help. If you wanted peace of conscience and freedom from guilt feelings, you turn to Jesus for these things. In other words, to become a Christian in this way of seeing things is to have all the same desires you had as an unregenerate person only you get them from a new source, Jesus. And he, and he feels so loving when you do. But there's no change at the bottom of your heart and your cravings. No change at the bottom of what makes you happy. There's no change in the decisive foundation of your joy. You just shop at a new store. The dinner's still the same. You just have a new butler. The bags in the hotel room are still the same. You just have a new bellhop. That's not what the new birth is. The new birth is when Jesus and his work on the cross becomes central, the foundation, the focus. And from that point, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Sounds familiar. That's what Paul was saying in Philippians. He said, if Christ is your center, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. So whether you're struggling with this or whether you have no struggles, if Christ is the focus, this is all going to work. And all of these things on the periphery are meant to focus you on Christ and who he is and to help you become more like him. And so the struggle that you're going through is there for a purpose. You can get through it with Christ and you will become more like Christ for going through it. If Christ is your focus. If the struggle is your focus, when you get through that struggle, you either go, hmm, well, I guess I didn't really need Jesus. And you leave. Or you're just in this ho-hum area of life. And this is, I think, 
what Jesus is trying to point out to this official. Jesus realizes the significance of the fact that his son is on his deathbed, but he sees the more important situation is that this official realize who he is. Now, we go on. The crowd's been dispersed a little bit. This person, this official, is still there. And the official, in verse 49, says to him, to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. And this passage is about miracles. Typically, you would say there's one miracle that happens, but I think there's three. And this is the first miracle. The first miracle is seen when this official says, Sir. Now, interesting. That word, sir, is in the Greek, kurios. Anybody know what kurios means? Are you curious to know what curious means? It means Lord. It means master. It is how people address Jesus who, who realize who he is. And so the crowd has kind of dispersed. And this guy's left there pondering. And, and, and I think the first miracle that happens in this story is his heart of stone is turned to a heart of flesh. And faith starts to grow. My son has these little uh, seeds that he brought home for a Sunday school class. And there's this experiment that they're doing. I don't know if your kids brought them home. But uh, there were some peas. And the idea was to, I guess, watch the peas sprout and it's hard to get out of him exactly what the purpose was. But um, the other day we were looking at these things and they're sitting in our windowsill. And guess what? They were moist. They had sunlight. And the, the covering cracked. And there was this little root starting to come out. And I think that's, you know, that's what we see here. In this man is that he's, he's starting to believe. Faith is growing. True belief is growing in this man. And the second time that he addresses Jesus isn't like, come on, Jesus, let's go. My son's sick. You got to come and heal him. But it's more, I think, he, he still is concerned for his child. But instead of, uh, come on, Jesus, let's go. What are you doing? It's more of a master, Lord, will you come before my child dies? And it's, I believe, a bit more heartfelt. And it is, okay, I, I see. You are the Messiah, and I acknowledge that. And but my son is still dying. Can you, will you do something about that? 
And Jesus replies, yeah, go. Your son will live. Drastically different than, than the first exchange that happened with the, will you come down and you people, all you want are signs and miracles. You won't believe. And then we have this official who I think gets it. And he makes that petition again, rightly ascribing to Jesus the honor that is due him. And how does Jesus respond? Yeah, go. Your son will live. Miracle number two. This is the miracle that most people would focus on, the fact that the son lives. But is this the greatest miracle? I don't know. Because this guy believes. And even though in his request, he still says, come down before my child dies. Look at verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. See, the... the, the official was saying, Jesus, you got to come and do something. Jesus says, go, he'll be well. And the official's faith is, you know, enough to say, okay, maybe he doesn't have to actually be there to heal my son. He said he's going to live. I'm going to go with faith. And so he turns and he goes. And, you know, all of this is, with the official is really condemnation of the rest of the Galileans because they wanted a miracle. They wanted to see something cool and they didn't see it. Nah. Oh, Jesus, you're so frustrating. And they were back to their old lives. But this guy believed as he was uh, heading back home verse 51 he was going down his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering so if you can picture this he's on the road back home and he sees his servants and it's kind of like one or two things you know your son's dead or your son's alive and your son's alive. And man, can you, you know, imagine the joy that was in his heart? And he goes, well, wait a second. Uh, he asked them, verse 52, the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So not only does he hear that his, his son is well, which is a great relief, but then he's like, well, okay, wait a second. When did this happen? At the seventh hour. And he knows. That's exactly when I was talking to Jesus. And Jesus said, your son will be well. And the fever left. The sickness was gone. Why? Because that's who Jesus is. <laughs> He's the Messiah. He has power over life and death and sickness and everything. 
And when he says, your son will live, there isn't a disease on earth that could have withstood that. It was gone. It had to go. And further confirmation for this official, verse 53 again, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. Now at this point, after that exchange, I think, you know, this guy's faith and his belief in God isn't this little pea with a teeny little root. It just goes boom. And it's a full grown plant. You know, I mean, he believes. There's, there's no, no doubt. Jesus said this at the seventh hour. His fever left at the seventh hour. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And then we see the third miracle because he comes back and he tells his family and his whole household what has happened, and they believe too. And they don't, Believe like the rest of the Galileans who just go, oh, Jesus did another cool thing. Man, that Jesus, I really wish I could go see him. No, they believe that he is who he says he is. And he is the son of God. He is the Christ. And that by believing in him, they can have life. And they believe. And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And really, here's the cool thing about this story. This is a sign, and the official in his household saw the sign and believed. And the sad thing is, the rest of Galilee missed the sign. And I think we have a couple of warnings here in this passage. Number one, I think a a warning that this passage gives is there are are a lot of things that that hinder a person's belief. Uh, For Nicodemus, it was just that faith is more than works. For The woman at the well, it was the fact that, you know, how can Jesus love me? I'm a sinner, but he really does. For this person, it was, well, Jesus is more than just things that he can do. He's more than miracles. He really is the Savior. And there there are so many things that, that can hinder us from belief. And one of the things that the Galileans suffered from was familiarity with Jesus. They were too familiar with who he was and what he had done. And, you know, they grew up with him. Now, we don't have Jesus literally, uh, you know, growing up in our midst here at Wood Bible Church. Um, But here's the thing. You know, for us parents out there, our kids are growing up in the midst of Jesus, we could say. 
They're, they're in church, they're going to Sunday school, they're doing things, they're praying. But do they really believe? You know, they, they've seen cool things happen in the church. They've been a part of the missions conference. Um, but do they really believe? Or are they just in church for something to do? And then when they come to the point of life where they get to choose what they want to do, they go, mm, well, you know, church is okay, but I'd rather go this way. You know, why does that happen? Well, it happens because they're like the Galileans. They're real familiar with Christ and who he is and what he can do. And they've seen some amazing things and yet they haven't believed. And, and I say that for kids, but man, that's grownups. That's anybody who comes into the church with the idea that uh, church is gonna do something for me. Anyone who comes in without that focal point of Jesus and his death on the cross and the fact that I'm a sinner and I need that. It's kind of like the Galileans. They're real familiar and yet they don't get it. They would welcome Jesus in, but they would not give him honor. And so there's, there's a warning the other warning that I see here is just that we see Jesus as a genie, you know? And this is what the, the official was doing. He wanted his son healed. He thought Jesus could do it. Um, and there, there's a danger in that. Was Jesus capable of healing his son? Absolutely. But the official needed to get some stuff straightened out first. You know, and there are great and amazing things that Jesus can and do and does do in a Christian's life, but that faith has to be there. That's, that must be the central focus, and that you know, kind of opens the door for God to work in your life. If you just see Jesus as a genie and you're an unbeliever, your tendency would be towards like the health and wealth kind of gospel. Come to Jesus and you'll get all this stuff. Come to Jesus, he'll make all your troubles go away. And that sounds pretty good, but it's not focused on the right thing. It's focused on getting stuff or being comfortable. How do you do that? Jesus. No, <laughs> that's wrong. Seeing Jesus as a genie for the believer can, can discourage us. You know, I gave my life to Christ, so why am I going through this trial? Well, why do we go through trials? To develop perseverance, patience, faith, to become more like the center of your life. So I'm not trying to diminish any kind of trial or, pers or persecution or anything like that, but yet... If Jesus is the focus and you're going through something like that, he'll help you definitely, but you got to see that getting through that is not the focus. Becoming more like him is the focus and dealing with whatever this trial is, is going to get you there. So you may have to deal with that for like 20 years until you finally 
learn your lesson. Jesus is not a genie. Can he do amazing things? Absolutely. And I also see in this, you know, a couple of warnings, but also some encouragement too, because when this official understood and just in the infancy of his faith, cried out to God and said, will you come before my child dies? What did Jesus do? He answered and he healed his son. You know, so it's not like Jesus is an unmerciful savior who's going to put you through the ringer in order to come to him. You know, it's like he's gracious. He's merciful. He does give us more than we deserve. And yet, that shouldn't be the focus or the point of our lives is getting stuff from Jesus, right? So, an interesting passage uh, in which we see, again, a group of people who had a need. And their need was to see Jesus as more than just miracles and cool things. Their need was to recognize him for who he was. And we see in the official's life when he recognized Jesus for who he was, miracles, amazing things. And, you know, it's, I think for us as a church, having looked at this passage, really the question is, you know, well, number one, do I truly believe in Jesus? And if, you know, if you're not there, uh, that's where you have to start. Who is he? What has he done? That's where you start. But if you put your faith in him, you have to ask, you know, am I looking to him for the right reasons or am I just trying to use him to get something in my life? What is your relationship with him? Do you see him as he truly is? Or do you need to refocus? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your son. And we thank you that John has given us uh, all these different examples in his gospel of people who need you. Uh, And we're thankful for that because each one of us fits into one of these categories. And I just hope that that we would not be so familiar with who you are and what you've done that we miss the, just the awe and splendor of the fact that you are God and you are our Savior. And Lord, I pray that you would truly be the focus of our lives and that everything else would would spring out from that and that we wouldn't just try and use you as a band-aid or um, as a means to get things. Lord, you are worthy of so much more than that. You are worthy of our whole lives. And Lord, would you teach us to properly esteem you for who you are and for your great 
great worth. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.